Welcome, everyone, to Roger's List. This is the podcast where I am going through every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies with a rotating cast of amazing guest hosts. My name is Steve Guntley. Today, we are talking about a movie called The Gray Zone, and uh, I am joined by one intrepid person who is able to uh, uh, motivate themselves to watch a movie about the Holocaust in the year of our Lord 2020. Uh, that's Joseph Finn. Hello, Joseph. How are you? Hello. It's good to see you. Yes, you as well. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Um, this is a this is a difficult one. This is probably the trickiest movie we've had to talk about. Like the most emotionally devastating, uh, bleakest, kind of hardest movies to uh, dig into a little bit. I, I was very amazed to find out that this is directed by Tim Blake Nelson, the beloved uh, kind of goofball character actor. Uh, so this was released on September 13th, 2001. It stars David Arquette, Steve Buscemi, Harvey Keitel, Natasha Leone, Mira Sorvino, Alan Cordiner, David Chandler, and a little bitty tiny appearance by a baby Michael Stuhlbarg. Um, so before we get into kind of talking about what this movie is, uh, Joseph, tell me a little bit about you. Uh, why, why did you want to talk about this movie in particular? Have you seen this I one before? I have seen this before. Weirdly, mm. the reason I decided to go with it was that uh, when you started up this project and you were asking for volunteers, I mm. weirdly, just like three days before, had run across a screener for this at a Goodwill. And really? I had never okay. Seen I had never seen the movie before. I know, of course, Tim Blake Nelson. I knew that he had directed O, his high school version of uh, Othello. But I had yeah. no idea that he had directed a Holocaust drama. Less, you know, less with this cast, which it's a bonkers cast. I and mean, I'm, I'm yeah, like, okay, David Arquette is not the first name you would think of yeah, for, uh, for a Holocaust drama. But yeah, right. yeah, totally. So I figured, you know what? I will give this a shot. I knew it was a uh, Roger Ebert uh, great picture selection. I had never read his particular essay on it. I read it after I watched the movie this afternoon. Uh, so mm. I'm coming into this. I am coming into this hot. Very I only fresh. It okay. Today. Uh, so I'm like, you know what? I will give this a shot. And how did you? Well, not to not to spoil the uh, conversation, but uh, how how did you how did you come? I mean, you're walking and talking, so uh, I, I I needed a I needed a little bit alone of alone time after I watched this movie. I had to. Uh, Kind of isolate myself and and, and uh, watch something pleasant for a little while to kind of uh, to kind of come out of it because this is this is bleak. This is a very bleak movie. Like Ebert in his essay kind of points out that most Holocaust movies end on a note of hope, and this movie does not. Uh, he pointed that out as kind of like a, a a point in its favor, and we'll kind of discuss whether or not that is a point of its favor i don't know i have my conflicting opinions on it but uh how, how are you feeling after watching the movie uh after watching the movie i immediately went on to amazon prime and pulled up it's a wonderful life because i needed something a little more hopeful yes um, yes this movie is it's great i'm just gonna go right in here this movie is great if i had to rank holocaust dramas it's going schindler's list then son of soul and then the gray zone that's wow. that is up there with all those other two. This movie, I think, is fantastic. I have things to say about the various actors' choices in it, which are great. It's a mm -hmm. really interestingly well-done movie, and I had no idea that Tim Blake Nelson was this good of a director. Or that he just had this story in him. It's just really right. kind of remarkable, you know, that uh, that that he had this tale and that he, he told it so unflinchingly. It's a pretty bold 
uh, directorial effort from someone who'd only directed two movies before this. Uh, pretty, uh, what pretty was impressive. The other one besides, uh, what was the other one besides, oh, I'm sorry. He he directed an adaptation of his first play, which was called Eyes of God, which uh, starred Martha Plimpton. Uh, I, okay. I haven't seen that one, but uh, it got some good uh, notices on the festival circuit back in 1997. And I think it, I think that's the reason he got O, which I also completely forgot he directed. Like, I, I've talked about that movie recently. I'm like, you know what's a good movie? Is that that O? Like, they did that high school version of Othello that was like, that kind of slapped. It's like a really good movie. And, I have, uh, I have I t- it sitting on my. Uh, I have it sitting on my shelf. Still, have never seen it. It's quite good. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, spoil it for you or anything. But I mean, it's. Uh, I, I was really impressed with that movie, and uh, I, I just completely blanked. I don't think I knew who Tim Blake Nelson was when I watched that movie the first time. Uh, which is actually a good segue to jump into talking about our director today, one Mr. Tim Blake Nelson. Uh He's definitely one of my favorite character actors. And after digging a little bit into his biography, he kind of has like a dream career. I feel like if you, this this is the kind of, if, if I were to be like a professional actor or anything like this, this would be the kind of career I want. You're this, you're a character actor, so you're not really going to be constantly in the limelight, but people still know who you are. They respect you. He gets to direct. He gets to act in comedies and serious dramas. He gets to sing. Like, he kind of does a little bit of everything. And uh, no one really has a bad word to say about Tim Blake Nelson as far as uh, as far as working with him. So uh, he was born in uh, Oklahoma in 1964, and he attended both Brown and Juilliard. He moved to Seattle after graduation and broke into the kind of burgeoning theater scene there. And he became a standout as both a writer and a performer. So he was the founder of a uh, sketch comedy troupe called The Unnaturals that eventually got its own series on Comedy Central in 1991, back when Comedy Central was still called Ha! The H-A exclamation point. The worst name for a network I can think of off the top of my head. And then, uh, they, yeah. uh, then they combined with, uh, shit, what was the other one? Uh, it was Ha and was it just comedy? It was like there, there was a comedy channel. That was it, And then there yes. was one, I think there was one just called CTV. I think it was just supposed to be comedy TV or something like that. Yeah, I went through a couple of stages before. Sorry, this is comedy me Central. completely going back into the early 90s pre-Comedy Central. There were like three channels that combined together. I know. I'm trying to think of like, wow, what's the earliest Comedy Central I saw? I think, I think I have seen it before it was Comedy Central because that happened in like '96 or '97. I've never seen The Unnaturals though, but it also has Siobhan Fallon, uh, who went on to be on SNL, and she's the amazing uh, uh, woman from Men in Black, who uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's wife in Men in Black. Um, so yeah, oh, so sugar, uh, the sugar water lady, the sugar water, yeah, Egger, Egger, yeah. sugar water, yeah. <laughs> so uh, his first play was called Eye of God. It was staged at the rep, uh, Seattle Rep in 1992. And his follow-up was The Gray Zone, which was uh, staged in 1996. Uh, so in addition to writing and directing those plays, he also started taking on film roles. He made his debut in a movie I watched recently as part of a... I, I do the, the Watch Along with the Blank Check podcast. And when they recently did their Nora Ephron series, uh, they, they did a movie called This Is My Life with Julie Kavner and Samantha Mathis. Really a quite a good movie about stand-up comedians. Uh, and he had a very tiny part in there as like a really bad, like rhyming fish comedian. Like his whole bit was like rhyming about fish and it was really weird, but he was, he sold it. What? It was very funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's his whole bit. He just, he just gets up and he tells like, he, he, he recites these sonnets about different kinds of fish. 
And uh, he's one of the ones who gets kind of jealous when he doesn't become successful. And I'm like, dude, you're rhyming fish. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so Nelson worked steadily throughout the 90s, but his big break came in 2000 when he got a call from his old buddy, Joel Cohen, who asked him to take a look at a script he was working on. Uh, it was going to be an adaptation of uh, The Iliad and the Odyssey. And since nobody on the, the Cohen brothers set at that time had read the book, they sent it over to Tim Blake Nelson, who was a classics major at Juilliard. And so he kind of sent it back with, uh, with a few notes and comments about it. And Joel Cohen surprised him by offering him the third lead in the movie after George Clooney and John Turturro. The movie, of course, is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And Tim Blake Nelson played uh, the dim-witted convict Delmar. And he earned rave reviews for the performance, and he even won a Grammy because he sings in the jailhouse now on the soundtrack, which went on to be, I think that was like one of the biggest selling albums of that year, and it swept the Grammys pretty much. So yeah, Tim Blake Nelson, Grammy-winning singer. Uh, Very well-deserved. I love his performance in that movie. So from there, his role started getting more and more prominent. Uh, He started working with Steven Spielberg in Minority Report, and he even broke into the MCU with The Incredible Hulk. Had there been a sequel to that, he would have played the supervillain known as the leader. Like they kind of, they kind of tease it by the end of that movie that that's what he's about to turn into, and then they just never followed up on it. Uh, but you know what? Marvel's bringing back every actor who's ever been in a Marvel movie apparently now. So maybe he's got a shot in Spider-Man Four or something like that. Uh, lately, he's been turning to uh, he's been doing increased television roles. So he had a really hilarious recurring bit on the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt as kind of the dumbest cop in the entire known world who keeps losing his gun and gets in a fight with a squirrel. He's really funny in that. And uh, he recently just kind of completely broke type and played a very different kind of performance in HBO's Watchmen series, where uh, he played kind of one of the vigilante heroes in that. And he's excellent in it. He's really kind of intimidating and uh, uh, kind of shows a depth that I hadn't seen in him before. Uh, So as a director, yeah, we talked about it a little bit briefly. In 1997, he adapted Eye of God into a film starring Martha Plimpton. He then followed that up in 1999 with O. And The Gray Zone happened after that. And after The Gray Zone, he earned some short-lived awards buzz from directing a movie called Leaves of Grass, which is a, uh, a pot comedy that has Edward Norton playing identical twins. And I never actually got around to that. I remember Roger Ebert saying that was one of his favorite movies of that year. Uh, and I just never got around to it. Uh, but the last movie he directed was uh, 2015's Anesthesia, which I have never heard of before. Um, I think he's just kind of focusing more on his acting career at this point. But based on the strength of the movies of his I've seen, like I'd love to see him get behind the camera again. Like I think he's a really talented director. You know, um, I have never seen Anesthesia or Leaves of Grass. I know Leaves of Grass vaguely just for... That's uh, Ed Norton plays twins, uh, is that correct? That's right, yeah, yeah. He plays identical twins in that. It was kind of a festival circuit favorite, and then nothing ever really happened with it. Uh, I, I remember hearing a lot about it, and then it just kind of disappeared. Oh, that's a bummer, because, you know, going off of this movie, I'm like, you know, I'm definitely going to go back and watch O, and uh, I'll catch up mm-hmm. on the other two, because I'm like, he's got an eye. He does. No, he really does. And he's, you know, for a guy who's kind of known for playing like these affable, earnest goofballs, like he's a very sophisticated filmmaker and and writer. Like he wrote this movie and the play that this movie is based on. And uh, it's really quite a remarkable script, too. 
So a little bit about the uh, basis of this. This movie is based on a book called Auschwitz, A Doctor's Eyewitness Account by Dr. Miklos Niesli, uh, who is a character in this movie, of course. Uh, so Nelson adapted the book into a stage play in 1996. This film, they shot it in Sofia, Bulgaria, and they actually built an 80% scale replica of the camp at Auschwitz, which is strangely terrifying to me that they would like recreate that. Uh, it, they, they, had, they cast mostly Bulgarian actors to play a lot of the extras, including the young actress who plays the girl in this movie, uh, didn't speak English. Uh, and yeah, so, but, but it seems like, you know, I, I'm, I'm really curious about where he came up with this cast. Cause you've mentioned it already that this is a very strange cast for a Holocaust movie. You would not immediately think David Arquette. You would not immediately think Natasha Lyonne. You would not immediately think Harvey Keitel. Uh, and they sell it. I think they do a good job. But he also pe- populates the cast with a lot of like theater stalwarts. Like one of the one of the my favorite performances in the movie was uh, uh, David Chamber or David Chandler playing uh, Max Rosenthal, and he's kind of a beloved like theater actor, but he doesn't really do much on in film. Same with Alan Cordner, who plays the doctor in this. And Michael Stuhlbarg at the time was just the theater guy. So it, it's uh, it's an interesting mix and. It's kind of hard to say who the protagonist of the movie is really or like the lead of the movie. It's it's more of a character piece like David Arquette's name is first on the call sheet, but I wouldn't really say he's the star of this movie. I don't know. What do you think? You know, for a while I thought, is Steve Buscemi the uh, central person of this movie? And then about halfway through, oh, obviously not. No, he, he uh, kind of disappears for a lot of the movie. Well, he doesn't disappear. He gets straight up. Uh, let's be frank. We're talking spoilers for a. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. We'll, movie we'll, here. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> Steve Steve Buscemi straight up gets killed about a halfway through this movie. This movie and, is it, not it, precious about killing off its characters at all. Right. Yeah, it's very abrupt and very sad and brutal. If any, if anyone is the central character of this movie, it's probably Alan Cordner as the Doctor. Uh, yeah, Dr. yeah, he's Doctor Nisisli. I, I, I apologize. I am going to mangle his name here. Yeah, um, I, I, I am too. I even practiced it. I think it's Nisli, but I could be completely wrong about that. He was a right. He, he was a real guy. He was a Hungarian surgeon who was uh, kind of conscripted against his will to work with Doctor Joseph Mengele and to be a surgeon in the Auschwitz camps. In exchange, you know, he's his wife and daughter got to live. Um, right. yeah. So he, and then he kind of wrote this book. Uh, he, I believe he died about 10 years after being freed from the camps. Uh, and then uh his, go, going yeah. by the, uh, going by the postscript of the movie. Yes. And then his wife yeah. dies in the seventies. And then there's, there's a weird postscript there. His wife, his daughter's fate is unknown. I'm like, that's yeah. Odd. Yeah. That was an odd thing to include. Like her fate is unknown. Like, does that mean they couldn't get in touch with her or they just, they didn't, they lost track. Yeah, I'm not entirely clear on what that was intended because that's like kind of the last thing you see in the movie is that postscript. Um, interesting, interesting story. So this, I went into this movie completely blind. Uh, I knew it took place during the Holocaust and uh, that's pretty much all I knew. And I kind of learned a lot that I didn't know about the Holocaust based on this movie. Um, which, yeah, I, th- I think we should just kind of jump into it. So, like, the the premise of this movie, the kind of central theme uh, that, that uh, Nelson wants us to think about is 
what would you do to for just a little bit more life? Um, that's kind of the central moral quandary at the center of this movie. Uh, it centers a lot on a battalion of uh, Sonder Commandos, and this is not a word I was familiar with until reading this movie. The Sonder Commandos are Jews who were forced into service working in the death camps. They would be the ones to escort their fellow prisoners to the showers or to dispose of the bodies and do things like that. In exchange for this service, they got to live a little bit longer than their counterparts, and they were fed better, uh, given access to medicine, things like that. Uh, and so that's what this movie is focusing on. And so that can kind of tell you what sort of territory you're working with when you're entering into this movie. Um, did you know much about this this chapter of, uh, of the Holocaust? Because I, I really was not familiar. A certain amount. Uh, I know the Sunder Commandos. I know of Capos. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, movie in the Criterion Collection. Well, sorry, not wonderful, but there is a movie mm. in the Criterion Collection that is literally called Capo that is about um, the Jewish... I hesitate to call them collaborators because they were basically being forced to be collaborators in in the camps. Uh, yeah. But, but it's a really good movie about the subject of those who were forced to cooperate for just a little more life or a little more bread. Um, it's it's it, it's a terrifying subject. Let's be frank. And, oh yeah, but it, yeah. It, and it's a really interesting thing. I know a little bit about it, and that's pretty much. I, I certainly would not dis, would not want to speak that I am like any kind of expert on it. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the movie Son of Saul earlier, and that's another film that kind of covers this incident, which was. Uh, what this movie is kind of building up to is an armed uprising. Uh, the prisoners of Auschwitz were planning kind of an escape, uh, and well, not, not even an escape. I don't think any one of any of them, in the, at least depicted in the movie, nobody seemed to have any illusions about surviving or escaping. It seemed, in fact, that they just kind of wanted to disrupt as much as possible and just stop this killing from happening, even if it meant their own lives, because. By if, this if, point, I may, if I may, Steve. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There were various aspects of the plan. I know a little bit, a bit about the history of this. There were various aspects of the plan. There were people who were devoted to blowing up or at least burning down parts of the uh, of the ovens. There were others mm -hmm. who were trying to uh, take out as many of the guards as they, were, as they were, as they could. And then there were uh, people who were devoted to getting people out of the camp as much as they could. And they were all, for an extent, kind of successful. But, yeah. you know, they didn't succeed in completely doing everything they wanted to. It the one we're focusing little... on is obviously the uh, ovens part. Yes, yes. It, it took me a little while to parse together that this was kind of the plot that was going on. Because we're kind of dropped into the experience. The first thing that we see is David Arquette is running to get a doctor to help his friend who had just taken too many pills. Uh, they think he's dead. The doctor comes in, is able to revive him, and then uh, David Chandler, playing Max Rosenthal, immediately comes in with a pillow and smothers the man to death. And that's kind of what you're working with. Like, the moment this man is revived, he's brought back. This is something that kind of keeps happening in this movie. Uh, and again, it's very unsentimental. It's This isn't, you know, again, we're going back to Schindler's List. That movie uses the Holocaust as a backdrop, but we don't live in it quite as intimately as we do here. Uh, we never see beyond the, the, the gates in this movie. We never, we're, it's, it's very ground level. 
lots of handheld cameras, lots of stark gray colors, and we're just kind of in it. There's I keep a, thinking. I yeah. kept thinking watching this that it kept reminding me of the Hannah Arendt phrase uh, from when she was covering the uh, the trial of Adolf Eichmann in uh, in Israel. It's the banality of evil because yeah, every part of this movie it's not dramatic. It's all so banal. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, of course you're going to move these bodies because you will survive another thirty minutes. Of course you'll gather up these clo- this clothing. You'll survive another 15 minutes. It's so terrifyingly banal. There's there's a moment that really stuck with me where we're just watching two Nazi soldiers. They're walking uh, on, on the grounds at night. They both put on gas masks. They open up a hatch. And only when they open up the hatch can we hear the screams that are coming out from below. And then they just proceed to dump the Cyclone B into that hatch, close it up and walk away. They don't even stop to listen. They don't stop to pay attention. This is just a check mark on their to-do list today. And it's it's utterly devastating. It, it is absolutely devastating. Uh, so we start to kind of meet some of our characters. Uh, a few of the people who are instrumental in planning this insurgency uh, include Daniel Benzali, who plays, uh, 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 excuse me, Schlermer, uh, Sh- Simon Schlermer. Uh, and uh, he's kind of the ringleader. Then we have Max Rosenthal. Uh, David Arquette plays Hoffman. Uh, Steve Buscemi is a, uh, a, he's a Hungarian who's kind of the go-between. He's sort of the guy who can get you the thing, you know, because he, he knows how to bribe the guards and kind of talk his way around things. But again, this isn't, this isn't presented in a cutesy kind of great escape kind of way. Uh, he, there are very, I, I, I immediately thought of James Garner in great escape when I saw him and I'm like, Oh no, but, but this guy is not that he is not James Garner in great escape. No, no, no. He, you, you get the sense that he's kind of scraped by so far by being weaselly in that, in that way that only Steve Buscemi can be so perfectly weaselly. Uh, but he is not, above anybody and you do get the sense the few scenes that you get with Buscemi you get the sense that any deal that was struck is running very very thin and then it culminates yep. of course into his just kind of sudden and abrupt execution for no reason um so it's it's kind of an inversion of that trope but he what he is kind of the guy who can get you the thing and then the other important story here is happening over at a munitions factory nearby it's an all women's munitions factory uh, the two central, two of the central characters here are Mira Sorvino as Dina, and her friend is played by Natasha Leone. And what they're trying to do is smuggle some of the gunpowder out of this munitions factory and get it to the men at Auschwitz. The problem there is that they they get caught pretty early on. There's a very devastating scene where uh, you just see Natasha Leone has been beaten to death. Uh, she she was kind of a bigger character. She's one of the bigger names in the movie. And without seeing the scene, we just see Mira Sorvino crying, and then we pan over and see her friend is in the room with her, beaten to death, and just left with her. The women in this movie are then proceeded to be tortured uh, to try to coax this information out of them about where did they get this powder, where is it going, what is the plan, and that's the the cl- I don't know the closest thing you get to kind of see of like the triumph of the human spirit is with these women refusing to talk. Uh, They've they've kind of accepted that they're going to die one way or another, and so they they just can't give up this information, even when like some of the most horrible things are happening to them. 
And again, there's no sentimentality here. There's nothing inspirational really to be gleaned other than the fact that this uprising would not have been as successful if these women had spoken, if these women had broken in any way. And so they're, they're remarkably strong people. Um, but again, it, it's all so very difficult. Um, I, I, so, I, have a, I have an odd point about uh, the Sorvino and uh, Leon in this. It's yeah. interesting that, I mean, maybe it's face blindness, maybe it's because their hair is so chopped off. Didn't recognize either of them, wasn't sure which one was which. Yeah, and I thought that yeah, was yeah. really interesting in the context of this movie, where all these people are essentially for the Nazis, completely interchangeable. And I yeah, think they, they they that was a point, and it worked well with these weird chopped off haircuts that both of them were working with. And Natasha Leone, I've never heard her be able to kind of subdue her New York accent. I mean, and I'm not I'm not knocking that. I think that's one of her greatest like strengths as an actress but she does kind of tone it down here and so it does take a little bit to kind of figure out that that's who it is i did want to ask you about the the accents in this movie so for the most part characters are not attempting an accent like people are not like they all sound american no one's trying for a hungarian accent or anything like that except for harvey keitel and some of the germans they are doing german accents which I honestly found distracting. I don't know. How do you feel about those? You know, I kind of grew into what Harvey Keitel was doing. I mean, Harvey Keitel, uh, I, I believe he's New York Jewish. I could be wrong on this. He is. Yeah, he's uh, Jewish and Polish by descent. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, but, you know, accent work doesn't matter. Um, I kind of grew into how he was doing that, that it felt foreign as opposed to everyone that he was talking to. So I'm hmm. like, it kind of makes sense that he is the one guy doing a German accent as opposed to all the camp members who are not. So that and kind I, of yeah. worked for me. I, I understood that as a choice. I think uh, maybe it's just like the the curse of Colonel Clink. I don't know. that You, you always just hear <laughs> a little bit of... Uh, there's just a little goofy tinge when Americans try to do German Nazi accents. They And... I, I did find it just, I think Kaitel's do, giving a good performance here, but I did find that to be a little bit of a distracting choice. I am grateful that they didn't make the rest of the cast try to do an accent, though. Right. Because, because frankly, you, the idea of David Arquette trying to do a German Jewish accent, oh my God. Right. No, no I was, thank you. <laughs> I was pretty on the fence about him being in this movie period and you know i will be honest he he did uh i i think he settled into the role very nicely and he has a moment at the end of the movie that i think is quietly devastating and i think it's the best work he's ever done uh he's he's an actor of very limited range and he's one that roger ebert always had kind of a an affection for that i never fully understood uh he kind of if you read back on his reviews any movie with david arquette he tends to be just a little bit gentler to that movie uh, even a movie like Ready to Rumble or something like that, you know, which insane to me to think that he was probably shooting this movie while Ready to Rumble was in theaters. That's that's crazy to me. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so Harvey Keitel does play the uh, the commander of the camp, and it's more than forty five minutes before we get anything kind of resembling like a like a, a, a clockwork kind of plot going on because what happens is that uh, a group of Jews are brought into the showers and gassed, 
And miraculously, one 14-year-old Hungarian girl survives. They don't know how. The doctor at one point is talking about how maybe she is breathing like a little pocket of wet air kind of on the floor of the shower. Through some miracle, she survives. Arquette discovers her when he's cleaning out the showers, and he smuggles her away on a pile of dead bodies. They bring the doctor in, and they are able to revive her. They don't know if she'll ever be able to speak again. They don't know what this gas has done to her. But in this moment, they've all kind of decided that this girl's survival is almost more important than anything else they're doing. And they're almost willing to risk their insurrection to keep this girl alive. And that's kind of where you get into the core moral quandary of this movie is just when you've been scraping by for so long and just doing the most ungodly things to survive, is there any way, is there any hope of redeeming yourself? Would saving this girl give them some sense of redemption before they die or before they escape or before anything happens. Um, it's yeah. Yeah. So the, it's, it's a very interesting way for that to come back in. And then of course things get very, very complicated from there and it just leads to massive death and heartbreak and horror. Uh, but I don't know. What did you think about this introduction? Like kind of late in the movie of this character? Well, uh, first off, it's apparently based on reality. So I can't argue with it that much. Uh, I no, believe uh, no. Primo, apparently uh, Primo Levi is the uh, one who wrote about that originally. And mm. so I cannot argue with it as something that actually happened. But in terms of how it changes everybody's reactions in the movie, um, it feels like I should argue with them because, guys, are you going to give up your entire plan just for this one girl? But on the other hand, that's part of the point of this movie that yes, you should change your plans for this one person so that she can survive. Yeah. And <clears throat> that is kind of the whole point of this movie. Pardon me. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, shoot, it's, it's a difficult movie where you have people trying to figure out how much of our humanity are we willing to give up so that we can survive. I, I found it comforting to have that kind of like narrative bit in there to have uh, to have a little bit more um it, it it gave the movie a little bit more structure it's not that the movie was unstructured it's more just that it, it you're you're just living so much in these day-to-day it took me a while to even realize that there was kind of a an insurrection plot going on it's kind of revealed piecemeal so it was nice to have like some kind of narrative moment like that to to hold on to uh even if it kind of pays off in a really grisly way. Um, okay, so uh, I think, yeah, we're, we're kind of getting into the climax of the movie where the the insurrection is about to happen. Um, the doctor, we, we haven't really talked about the doctor too much, but he is brought in as kind of like a confidant to Kaitel. Uh, they, you know, obviously uh, disliking each other at a fundamental level, but they they speak in the interface a lot and the doctor has a certain amount of sway. And so he's able to convince Kaitel not to kill the girl outright in order to do so. He has to reveal that there is going to be an uprising, but he does refuse to give any specific details as to when or who is involved. Um, and when the uprising finally occurs, it's a very well shot sequence, uh, very, very intense and very well done. And it's, it's uh, kind of counteracted with the 
the the munitions factory and the women over there with a really uh, I think this is the scene that's going to like stick with me the most out of this whole movie is uh the the uh Mira Sorvino and uh I forget the name of the other character who was with her but uh they are being lined up in front of a fence and all of the other female uh concentration camp prisoners are being brought out and shot in the back of the head until they say where the powder's going. And rather than sit here and watch that happening, Mira Sorvino's character throws herself onto an electric fence. Her friend throws herself onto a guard and he, she gets shot to death. And that's how they're able to resolve that situation. But it's, it's, it's so devastating to have to see it and have to see like the machinations that went into making that decision, you know, that desperate gambit that uh, just, just to save one possible life throwing yourself onto the fence like that after spending the movie being tortured and beaten. Uh, it, it was really, it was devastating. It was absolutely devastating. Um, yeah, the, that scene is, woof. Um, I don't even know what I can say about it that you have not yeah. said already. It's a very terrifying scene, but I, I, I watched it and I'm like, there is this one shot of one of the, uh, the main Nazi guy who is just, looking at uh, Servino's body and going, well, I messed up. They're done. And it's like, everybody clean this up. I'm like Immediate, yep, yeah. Yep. The banality, again, it's just immediately, it's like, all right, well, this project didn't work out. Now let's, now let's move on. Like, he, there, there's no, yeah, there's just no pause in the action. It's just immediately, like, the threats disappear and they just send them off, uh, and it, it was just, it's so, there's a matter of factness to everything that's happening here, which I think is something like, and, and I guess that's one of the issues I am wrestling with in this movie, because, you know, I, we've mentioned it a few times and we're going to talk about it on a future episode of the show, but Schindler's List is kind of seen as like the Ur text as far as Holocaust films go. It's the best known, it's the best regarded, and... But it does have that Spielberg level of sentimentality. It does end on a helpful note, and it doesn't put you as on the ground level with this suffering as this movie does. And I'm not sure if I think that The Gray Zone is better for being so unflinching about it, or if this there, there's a part of me that feels a little bit icky about using this real world tragedy in a way to kind of this, uh, to kind of generate like a, a, a philosophy one one kind of questions, you know, and I think there's more going on here. That's a little bit dismissive. I don't mean to be too dismissive of it, but that's kind of the central thing I wrestle with, with this movie. Like does this movie benefit from being so bleak and so hopeless? Or do you think we need that little extra bit of hope at the end to kind of say like, you know, I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, you know, somebody messaged me when they found out I was watching this and going, I, that they legit thought there was a sense of hope at the end of this movie. And I'm like, I'm not sure what you're seeing there. No. I'm only curious what you're, and I will follow up with them and ask him, what are you looking at? There's no sense of hope in the, at the end of this movie. No. It's a, it, it's a document of how it's, it's a massacre, frankly. Um, yeah. But going back to your to your central point, um, I think this movie is more. Well, it's kind of well. Okay, let me put it this way: mm. taking a drink of water. Yeah, yeah. 
There is a difference in the Holocaust between work camps and death camps. Right. Auschwitz-Birkenau was a work camp. Uh, Kalmo uh, was a death camp. <clears throat> so Auschwitz has a little bit of a uh, hope that eventually they were going to be liberated. Right, right. So that's about as good as you are going to get. This is uh, 1944, by the way. They're about a year away from being uh, liberated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, there were there were rumors of, like, Russians coming. So you could kind of look at the Sonder Commandos and, like, all right, they're, they're, they're trying to muscle through as long as they can with these kind of vague, unsubstantiated hopes that the Russians are going to come and liberate the camp. Right. So that's about as hopeful as you're going to get at the time that this movie is set. Yeah. But do you think it benefits from from being so harsh? I guess that's the one thing I I wrestle with. Like I understand I understand the thought behind it. I'm just wondering as a viewer and maybe this is just like a failing of me as a viewer that I that I'm wrestling with it because and maybe just the fact that it is a hard to watch movie. Um yeah, does it benefit? Well, that's that's an odd question to me in the first place. Yeah, just because it's a Holocaust drama. I mean, does it benefit? Well, um, yeah, yeah. No, I understand. I mean, I, I guess the the just the 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 sheer unflinching bleakness of it compared to kind of a slightly more hopeful take on on the story. I don't know. Right. I think that's just kind of yeah. That's just the the thing I'm wrestling with, uh, especially as this movie kind of speeds to its conclusion. You know, which which is incredibly harsh. I think it maybe just depends on the ending because this and Schindler's List are both based on real stories. Yeah, and they have different endings. Mm-hmm. The Schindler's List ending is pardon me. The Schindler's List ending is bad, but also hopeful because all these people survived, and there mm. are now like ten thousand descendants. And this, pretty much, most of them don't survive. Yeah, uh, as opposed to the few who will survive until the liberation in about a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's it's just always something I wrestle with with movies like this. Um, that like I, I I respect it so much, and I guess yeah, I I I just I wonder about it. I wonder about living in this kind of space and living in this kind of negativity and just having a complete dearth of hope. Uh, that that it's just not something I'm used to seeing. I guess you know it's not something that I'm you you're you're used to seeing kind of a. a some kind of bow put on things. And obviously that's not something you can do with these real world horrific tragedies. Um, but I don't know. I, th- I think that I'm having a hard time articulating exactly why uh, I, I was wrestling with it a little bit, but we, we kind of, we kind of go to the, the aftermath of the uprising in the story. And uh, most of our characters have died. Uh, you know, the, the leader of the resistance blew up when the crematorium blew up. Uh, and everyone else is just kind of marched out, laid down on the ground, and then the Nazis kind of walk down in a row and summarily execute them as they make the young girl watch. And then they let the young girl walk towards the gates uh, and shoot her dead before she can make it out. And we end with kind of a voiceover of the girl kind of giving this poetic reading 
talking about how like all of their ashes are are staining everything. You know, I think I, I wrote down a little bit of this. It's uh, the we settle on their shoes and their faces and their lungs, and they become so used to us that they don't cough or brush us away. It's the idea that everyone involved, either the uh, uh, I read an interview with Tim Blake Nelson where he was talking about part of the reason he was fascinated by the story was when he was learning about the contractors who built Auschwitz. There was a bidding war between independent contractors who weren't affiliated with the Nazi party, but they they had to come up with these mechanisms knowing what they were for, and there was still a bidding war for it. And so it's kind of this idea that we are marked with this sin, uh, that everyone involved in this is going to be marked in a very physical and real way by the sins of uh, of what they've done here. I thought it was a very powerful ending, very, very powerful way to close it out. And I think it kind of goes into how there are, there is a certain amount of, um, well, let's be frank, we are now almost 80 years later. And there are certain people in uh, Germany and Poland, uh, Auschwitz-Birkenau was in Poland, who mm. try to go, oh, we didn't cooperate, which is, you know what, obvious bullshit. Let's oh, be yeah. frank. Yeah, 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 of course. Like, the, the, there, there are people who there are people who will say that they, they you know the people who were living outside of Auschwitz Birkenau, oh we didn't know what was going on there, please. Uh, yeah, you I don't know. Worked, you you, you I, worked on building it. And I mean, how could you see? Like Ebert pointed out in his essay, it's like how can you see these train loads of people going into this, and then a bunch of smoke coming out of the smokestacks after, and never see these people again, and not have some kind of idea of what's going on. You know, it, it's it's it, I, it may not have been universally condoned, but it was something that was happening. People were aware it was happening, and they weren't doing anything about it. Uh, and so that's kind of the sin that everyone is marked with. Like you are all marked with the ashes of these people who fought and died. There, uh, there's a very touching scene uh, with David Arquette and uh, David Chandler where they're speaking on the ground before they're executed talking about how uh, they were getting ready before the before all of this happened to uh, move to uh, Istanbul or to Budapest excuse me to move to Budapest and uh, Arquette realized that they would have been neighbors if he'd actually moved into that spot you know and they have this one moment just before they die where they say we did something uh they they got they got this moment to make something worthwhile and we get in the postscript that these crematoriums that were destroyed were never rebuilt so they did they did something they did something and i mean that might be the closest that we get to some kind of hope at the end it's that they were able to slow things down even if they weren't able to stop it completely um and and at the at the end they were able to kind of validate their their suffering and their existence in a way that gave them kind of comfort at their, at their final moments. So it, it, there, there's, there's that, there's that little moment that you get. And I think that's the moment with that David Arquette, um, really sells it and really nails, uh, the performance. So let me ask you, Steve, are yeah. you recommending this movie? That is a very hard question to ask, right? Yeah. Because this, this kind of slots into movies of the like you you watch it and you you think it's brilliant and then I, I I don't see myself ever watching this movie again. Um, I don't really I I feel like it's kind of seared into my mind in one of those singular ways, kind of like 
I haven't revisited 12 Years a Slave since I saw it, even though I thought it was brilliant and it moved me to tears, but I've never revisited it um, because, and it's not because I'm unwilling to kind of uh, uh, dig into these things. I think it's just because it's been seared so inexorably in my brain. And I, I, I can't... I can't imagine myself saying, okay, yeah, go, go sit down and watch this movie right now. So that's, I don't know. That's a tough question. That's a very tough question. Uh, what do you think about that? I think if you are in the mood to watch something that's really well done, but it's going to sear, sear your morality a little bit, make you question things. I'm saying, okay, go for it. It's a challenge. It's a, it's a challenging movie. But absolutely know what you're going into it for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 A thousand percent. I think uh, if, if you listen to this episode and kind of get a sense of what we're talking about and kind of know what to expect going in and know that there is not going to be any kind of coda that is going to take away the pain of what you've seen, then uh, uh, I, I, th- I think it's brilliantly well done. Uh and interestingly, I think a lot of critics were kind of wrestling with the same issue I was. This has a 68% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is decent, but it's also one of the lowest rated movies on Roger Ebert's great movies list. Uh, and this is a this is a pretty obscure poll for for this list. Like a lot of people, even with this was largely ignored when it came out. It made less than a million dollars at the box office. Uh and it, it basically it didn't even get a DVD release until like three years after uh, it, it debuted. So I think a lot of people were struggling with the same thing that I was kind of struggling with. It's like, how do you recommend people to see a movie that is so relentlessly bleak? And I think I think I do have to come down on the side of I think it's important to see. I think I I, uh, I learned a lot about this period that I didn't know before. I learned a lot about the struggle that I didn't really know before. And you do need to kind of force yourself to live in it a little bit. And I, I hopefully the net effect is that, you know, enough people see things like this and then we understand it for the monstrosity that it is. And we don't allow ourselves to rewrite history the way we've been doing in the last couple of years with our own uh, Mexican internment camps that we've got going on. Uh, so it's, um, yeah, yeah, it, recommend might be an odd word, but I would say uh, if, if you're up for a challenge, if you're up for, for pushing yourself a little bit, I would watch The Grey Zone again. Yeah, for sure. Yes. Uh, you know what? Uh, this just brings me to a different question. If you have the spreadsheet open, please tell me I selected something, because uh, I know I selected a few. Please tell me I selected some cheerier stuff than this. Oh my God! I hope you did. I really hope you did. Uh, if not, we will definitely <laughs> we'll get you in on something. Let's see. The next one I have you showing up for is Cat People. That's a it's a lighter movie for sure. It's not a light movie. Uh, but pardon it's a- me. The night the nineteen forty one. Oh yeah, nineteen forty-one cat people. Yep, mm-hmm. absolutely. That, that is that is cheerier than this. Yes, it is cheerier than this. It's. Uh, <laughs> did you see Curse of the Cat People? Oh, I the, love the Curse of the Cat People. That is. One I of love the that best one too. That is one of the best Christmas movies. Right. Yeah. It's a. It's a secret, like heartwarming Christmas movie. So you can watch that it one. Is. You know. Yeah. There you go. That's yeah. that's a. That's a comeback from this one, I think. Yeah, we, we will definitely have you back for uh, for something a little less bleak. But <laughs> I, I, 
I absolutely appreciate uh, uh, your your stepping up and talking about this one with me because uh, uh, clearly why I, did it, I don't why think did I are, choose this as the first one. Oh my god! I know. God. Uh, I, I I appreciate it. I think that was a, it was a bold move and it really helped me. I think I've been struggling to articulate my feelings about this movie because it is pretty raw. You know, like you said, you just came from it. I I watched it yesterday. And I've still just been kind of wrestling with it all day. Um, and I, I probably will for quite some time. I'm definitely not going to look at Tim Blake Nelson the same way again. Like, you know, it, it's it's surprising to know that he's got something of this kind of power and magnitude in him. So, um, well, I feel, that I feel is, the need. Yeah. To, I feel the need to rewatch. Um, uh, shoot. What the hell is the name of the movie? Uh, the Western uh, anthology that the Coen brothers did a couple Buster's- years ago. Yeah, Buster, Buster Scruggs. Yeah, yeah, he's wanna, great I want to watch him in Buster Scruggs again. He should have. He should have had a best song nomination because that's awesome. How did he not? Yeah, that's crazy. Like, what is possibly competing with best song anymore? Like, no, but that's that's kind of a dead category. Um. Well, thank you so so much for uh for for toughing this one out with me and uh and for for providing such excellent insights into it. I really appreciate it. Um. Do you have anything you'd like to plug or anything that you're working on that you want people to uh to know about? Uh, you know, I do occasionally write for the uh, Seven Consortium. It's uh, You can just search for Seven Consortium and Blogspot. I write about stuff that I have found in uh, thrift stores. Uh, mm-hmm. You can find me on Letterboxd. I am Joseph Finn. That's J-O-S-E-P-H-F-I-N-N on, uh, on uh, Letterboxd. Um, and that's pretty much about it. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so, so much again for uh, for being here for this one. Uh, next Thank week you very we much for having have, me. Next week, we do have a bit of a lighter one for you. We are going to be talking about Spike Jones's adaptation from 2002 with Nicolas Cage playing identical twins, much like Edward Norton in Leaves of Grass. Uh, a brilliant, weird, uh, super fun movie uh, that I'm looking forward to digging into. So be sure to tune in next week for adaptation. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a great night. <laughs>